Welcome to the politicalbetting.com Polling Matters podcast. My name is Kieran Pedley. Well, we're back after a short hiatus over the summer. I decided to put the microphone down for a few weeks on the basis that not much would happen. And from a British perspective, that was largely true. We had a sort of silly season row of sorts over Big Ben, but to a to a great extent, there wasn't really a lot of talk, uh, a lot to talk about politically in Westminster over the past few weeks. Certainly, very very different to where we were this time last year, and that is very much borne out in the opinion polls. If we look at recent polls that were announced in the last couple of days with YouGov and with ICM, we see that Labour maintains the progress it's made since the general election. But actually, that progress is not that substantial. So with YouGov, Labour are a point ahead. 42 plays 41 against the Conservatives. And with ICM, the, the current polling is neck and neck. Conservatives 42, Labour 42. So, and to be honest, the other smaller parties not polling very significantly well. So in reality, Labour has seen a slight shift towards them since the general election. But that that shift hasn't significantly carried on um, since it took place. So very much neck and neck in the opinion polls at the moment. What that would mean for a general election is very hard to say. You would imagine Labour would make progress if that result was um, uh, repeated at an election and would probably uh, mean it was very difficult for the Conservatives to form a government. But given how much the uh, general election campaign in June shifted public opinion, maybe we just don't know what would happen if a hypothetical general election was to take place, particularly if it took place mid-parliament because the government fell. So we'll be watching the polls very closely, but at the moment, slight shift to Labour, not sure what would happen if there was a, a sudden election. So moving on, as Westminster goes back to school, so to speak, all eyes will be focused on what's going on with Brexit, and that will be the focus of today's episode. And I'm delighted to say that this week's episode is dominated by a conversation uh, between myself and Jonathan Porters. Now, Jonathan Porters uh, will need no introduction to some people listening to this podcast, but for those of you that are not familiar with his work, Jonathan is a senior fellow uh, of the Economic and Social Research Council's UK in a Changing Europe, um, which is based out of King's College London. Now, what, what that organisation does is, is promote research into the uh, changing relationship between the UK and the EU, so obviously very, very relevant at the moment. Uh, Jonathan's an expert on free movement and the economic consequences of immigration and served as the chief economist at the Department for Work and Pensions from 2002 to 2008 and at the Cabinet Office from 2008 to 2011. He led the Cabinet Office's economic analysis and policy work during the financial crisis and on the G20 London Summit in April 2009. And from 2011 to 2015, he was director of the National Institute of Economic and Social Research. So, Jonathan, very much someone that knows what he's talking about when it comes to Brexit and immigration. So, who better to talk to about what's happening with Brexit and the progress being made in talks and what might come next than Jonathan Porters? And what you're about to hear is a 20-minute conversation or thereabouts between me and Jonathan. And I started off by asking him how Brexit was going. Well... Um, I'd say it would be very hard to say it's going well. Um, it's not going disastrously. Um, it hasn't really gone very far yet at all. And I think the main point I'd make is that, you know, we triggered Article 50 back in uh, the end of March. And we've basically had rather little apart from shadow boxing uh, yet. So I think 
it's not so much that it's gone well or disastrously badly. It is that it hasn't gone as far as fast as one would have hoped. And that in itself is obviously bad news. Uh, the fact is we have lost a considerable amount of time for the negotiations. And that's partly uh, as a consequence of uh, internal dissensions within the government and partly as a consequence of uh, the uh, obviously the uh, the general election. Uh, so I think the result of that is that even where the government has done some things in, you know, a, where, where the civil service has done a lot of work and where some of the stuff that's been produced is actually perfectly reasonable, we haven't got perhaps as much credit for it as we should have. So to take something that I've spent an awful lot of time on the question of rights of EU citizens currently leaving here and British citizens living elsewhere in the UK, I think the paper that the government published was a perfectly reasonable um, opening offer. Um, went into, you know, on, on the detail, there were some things in there which I think were very sensible, some which the Europeans not understandably pushed back against and so on. But if we published that nine months ago, it would have been regarded as a very constructive, uh, positive first step. The fact that it wasn't published until um, three months after the Europeans had already set out their position uh, made it look as if we were dragging our feet. Uh, um, and frankly, uh, um, by the time it came came out, it was at the very best, the bare minimum that we could could do. Um, and I think that sort of characterized our approach so far is that it's been a, a bit of a case of either too little, too late, or, or just about the bare minimum uh, too late. And that's not a very sensible way to conduct a negotiation. I mean, one of the things I'm interested in as a, as a pollster, as someone that looks at public opinion on this, is just how much what public expectations are can actually align with reality once the eventual Brexit deal um, is delivered. There's lots of polling out on this, but one statistic that really struck me was this recent poll that said 70% of Brits think that a divorce bill of £30 billion would be kind of unreasonable and wouldn't be acceptable. And I guess that's maybe not surprising when we consider some of the language that's come out about what may or may not be delivered. I mean, do you think the public is realistic about um, what they're going to expect from Brexit? And what do you think the public mood tells us more specifically about the flavour of Brexit that we might get? I mean, I know you've spoken a lot about the uh, political economy that drove Brexit in the past. So, I mean, wh where do you think public opinion fits in with all of this? Uh, I mean, I think, you know, it is very, very difficult to try, uh, and you probably know this better than I do, to get a fix um, when you talk about large numbers that really have no relationship to anybody's meaningful day-to-day -day experience, right? What does 30 billion pounds means? Even, you know, I'm an economist, I deal with numbers like that every day, but 30 billion pounds still doesn't have any concrete meaning to me, let alone to, uh, to to most people. So I think expecting people to give an informed view about whether 30 billion pounds is too much, too little, or just right is, is I think, um, unreasonable. But it will depend very much on the political context within which whatever deal is 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 agreed. And I think particularly if uh, the upshot of this is some sort of transition under which we are, you know, we are not sort of writing one check for 30 billion, but we are simply continuing to make the payments um, that uh, that we would have made anyway. That is to say, we're continuing sending the, the not 350 million, but 200 or whatever million pounds a, a week it is to Brussels um, as part of a transitional arrangement. I suspect that people will find that, find that much more tolerable. So I think that for me, the more interesting question on that is, 
you know, what does the overall shape of, of what's happening look like and will that be acceptable? And in particular, does a position under which we are ex essentially accepting that we are going to continue to follow most, if not all, of the current rules as regards free movement, as regards payments, as regards the single market uh, um, for um, at least a couple of years after Brexit. Um, will that be acceptable? Uh, um, and I have no idea what the answer to that is, but I think that's probably the right question. Will it be acceptable uh, generally to a majority of people in the country that, that essentially we have some version of the status quo going on for quite a while while we try to negotiate our way out of uh, uh, out of this mess? Uh, accepting that means continued free movement, continued contributions, um, no vote or voice in the EU as to, to the future direction of, of travel of the EU. Um, is that a is that a price worth paying? And I, I don't know what people will make of that, but it does seem to be sort of of where we're headed. That's explicitly Labour Party policy now. And actually, um, as I also said in the last few days, really Labour Party policy is just a more realistic and negotiable version of what uh, the Treasury um, and the European Union. Uh, um, also think is the most likely plausible outcome. So there's a degree of consensus, a, a elite consensus around that. Um, is there, will there be public consensus around that? I don't know. I suppose one of the, um, you allude to Labour's policy there, and let's let's come on to that um, policy change. I, I suppose one of the big, big changes in the last uh, six months or so, the last few months, is that the prospect of a Labour government in the future or the near future is actually is actually there in a way that maybe six months ago we were talking about five, 10, 15, 20 years or so until a hypothetical Labour government might materialise. I mean, how significant do you find this change in Labour policy or it was billed as such over the weekend? Um, I think I'm right in saying Labour have committed to staying in the single market for up to four years. Is it four years after the... Well, uh, I mean, my, my, uh, I think Keir Starmer said um, as uh, um, you know, something along the lines of uh, um, um, as long as is necessary and not more. So I think <laughs> labor policy um, is is uh, deliberately flexible on that. Um, but remember that the government had already said that it wanted to con that that well we would legally leave the single market and customs union in March 2019. It wanted to avoid any cliff edge and essentially to um, preserve the advantages from an economic perspective of both the single market and the customs union um, for, again, you know, the implication of the government policy was as long as is necessary, but not longer. Um, so um, in a sense, it seems to me that, that uh, Labour's policy is clearer, but it's really just a realistic and negotiable version of the government's policy because um, the EU has already stated that, that it, was, it is prepared to offer something along those lines but it, you have to take it as a package deal, which is, and Labour is saying, ex ante, yes, we regard that as acceptable. The government has said, well, we want all that. Well, that's sort of what we want, but we want to chop and change it in various ways to make it politically easier for us. But that's still basically where we want to end up. So I, you know, my, my view, as I, I said, is that Labour's policy is really just a, uh, um, a realistic and negotiable version of the government's policy. And actually, Labour's policy um, it's well known is precisely what the Treasury, for example, is arguing for within government. Uh, so there is. Uh, um, so I'm not sure uh, it is a very significant moment in it, the sense it crystallizes that. 
but it's not necessarily uh, um, um, a game changer in, in terms of where substantively we're likely to add up. Where Labour's policy um, still remains uh, quite ambiguous and, and where it will be very important to see what happens in, in future and where this really does matter is, is what Labour's vision is for the longer term um, after the transitional period, because there the government, the governments, uh, you know, there are sort of two versions broadly, uh, not that there aren't intermediate versions, but there are sort of two binary versions of, of, of where the UK's economic future lies post-Brexit. So the first is to say, you know, we're going to be outside the EU, outside the single market and the customs union. Um, uh, and although we want a deep and comprehensive trading agreement with the EU, um, that's as far as it goes. And if it doesn't happen, it doesn't happen. Uh, the UK's future is as a global trading nation doing deals with the rest of the world, et cetera, et cetera. Um, uh, that's one version of Brexit. There, there is another version of Brexit, which is to say, well, we're going to be outside the political structures of the European Union, because that's what the UK voted for. But actually, geography, history and economics all point to the UK-EU relationship as still being by far the most important economic relationship for the UK for the foreseeable future. And therefore, we want to negotiate so that we retain de facto, if not de jure, membership of the single market and customs union. Um, if that means giving up some freedoms to make deals with the rest of the world, that's very much a price worth paying. All the economics suggest that that's a trade-off worth paying. Um, uh, ideally, therefore, what we'd look to do is to negotiate some sort of genuine partnership. Uh, you could call it associate membership. You could call it the continental partnership, as was floated by some think uh, Bruegel, the Brussels think tank, a couple of months ago. Uh, we probably still keep some version of free movement, albeit modified. So there was a, a, a um, modified uh, and, and limited version of free movement, but still be free movement and presumably some modified and limited version of the single market and customs union as well. But we'd still be very much part of the European economic space. Um, and so I think what we're seeing now is that, that you know, the government is still pegged to the first version of that mm. first version of Brexit. Um, and Labour is is more and more inclined to the second version of Brexit. And those are two quite different versions. I want to come on to that free movement question in a moment. But briefly, before I before I get there, I think you've said in the past that far and away, the trade arrangement or trade deal that would maybe not compensate for, for Brexit, but certainly go some way to, um, I don't know if offsetting is the right word, but you know, something like that would be a deal with the US. That's the that's the economy of a sufficient size to actually have an impact on, on, on our economy. Um, do you have a view on what that would actually look like for the average consumer in practice? I mean, what, what would be the differences that they would notice in everyday life if we had some sort of comprehensive trade deal with the US as opposed to the, the, the European uh, relationship we have now? Um, well, apart from uh, your chlorine-washed chicken and your hormone <laughs> beef, uh, which, you know, which are, are things that we would indeed notice, whether you regard those as, uh, you know, and uh, um, I'm not an expert on the science, but, you know, it would mean uh, um, lower prices for food um, uh, uh, at the expense, perhaps, for at least a large number of people of, of, of have seen things on our supermarket shelves, which uh, we might not necessarily uh, feel too, uh, too happy about. Um, but there would be uh, more broadly... 
uh, it would depend on just how comprehensive, but you could see, um, uh, um, you know, the sort of things where there might be real gains, but where it would be exceptionally difficult to negotiate would be on things like financial services, right? If you actually had, um, the, if, if, if British banks and financial services could genuinely compete on an equal basis in the US and, and, uh, uh, and vice versa, um, that might generate real economies and efficiencies and lower prices. Um, I think uh, most people who look at this area think that the chances of that happening are, are very small, however, because uh, uh, the US jealously regards its regulatory sovereignty on financial services. Um, and uh, uh, I think we would be very reluctant to do the sort of deal which on which inevitably we are we are less powerful. And this is a problem across the board that um, the U.S. plays hardball on trade agreements, um, and we would be uh, clearly the the weaker have the weaker hand. Mm -hmm. That doesn't mean that there couldn't be gains, um, but I think we would be you know the, the the idea that that this would be easy and simple and it, it's our only upside. I think is is not one that any uh, anyone who knows very much about trade would take very seriously. Let's talk about um, freedom of movement. You mentioned that that earlier. I think it, w it wouldn't be a controversial statement to say that that was one of the driving factors in the Leave vote um, opposition to it uh, last year. Um, I mean, what sort of system do you see us um, moving towards? I mean, and, and what, what do you think might be deliverable in a softer kind of Brexit? Oh, I, I think, it, you know, it, uh, as I say, you, you know, so for the transitional period, it looks like we will have to, you know, the government will have to accept the free movement stays more or less as now. And actually, of course, the the, uh, um, the the not so open secret in Whitehall is that that's going to have to happen anyway because the Home Office simply doesn't have the administrative capacity to introduce a new system by March 2019. So nothing very much is going to change for several years. Um, so if we go down the track set by the current government, uh, uh, um, that is where we uh, uh, where whatever our agreement with the the EU is for the uh, for the longer term the after any transition we have sovereignty over immigration we have control um, then what what looks most likely at present is that there will be a system where we do not have free movement but there is some sort of preferential access for Europeans to the UK labor market that is that we essentially still have some sort of work permit system um, but uh, uh, um, the threshold for hiring a European is lower than the threshold for hiring a non-European. Um, and beyond that, I think no decisions have been make, taken. Um, and even that leaves open a number of questions. So will, for example, there's been a lot of talk about sectoral or industry-based schemes. Uh, uh, um, uh, uh, there are both advantages and disadvantages about that. Uh, I think it's clear that government has not made up its mind. Uh, there uh, would we have uh, quotas or caps? And if so, is that going to be overall for Europeans or by sector or by industry? Um, is there going to be any regional based element to such schemes? Um, the government is opposed to that, but it's not necessarily so opposed to that, that it, that's not something that might be traded away if necessary to appease the Scots uh, um, uh, or London as as part of the the wider politics of it. So there are a huge number of open questions uh, um, as regards what a uh, what a scheme would look like. I think all we can safely say is that it um, 
uh, it would not look like free movement. Uh, uh, you would people from Europe will require some sort of permit, uh, uh, a work permit type arrangement to come. And the probability, but not certainty, is that there would be some form of preferential access for Europeans. So that's what happens if we go down the the the, the road that the current government want claims to want to go down at the moment. Now, if we go down the road that uh, um, uh, that that. Uh, uh, the Labour Party or the Treasury or various people, uh, uh, business who want a much softer version of Brexit uh, that continue where, where effectively we have uh, uh, um, something close to continued membership of the single market go down, then we're in a completely different world. Because then um, as, you know, the Europeans have made absolutely clear that free movement is part of the single market, uh, um, you know, that it's a package. Um, and in that case, um, then what we are talking about is is uh, not the end of free movement uh, um, but some for some modifications to free movement and there we just because we haven't really engaged with the the EU on that at all um, we don't know what sort of modifications might be negotiable in a context whereby we wish to continue to be members of the single market but members outside the EU rather than with David Cameron's negotiation members within the EU um, and so this is something that I'm doing some a lot of detailed work on at the moment and it's very difficult but it's, it's it, you know it's a uh legally politically economically an open question uh mm. what does free movement look what sort of modifications are possible and there are various modifications that could be possible you know people talk about free movement with a job offer people talk about a limit limiting the time that people here can search for a job uh, um before uh, before getting one and otherwise having to return which is in theory possible within the uh, the treaties already and there are various other modifications you can imagine so i mean i want to finish by talking a bit about um what the future might look like for brexit i think you've said before that um Brexit is going to make us poorer as a country, but isn't necessarily the end of the world. I think I'm right in, in, in sort of semi-quoting you there. I just wanted to sort of expand a bit on that and sort of understand what you meant by that. Well, I'm, I mean, if you look at the, uh, um, the, the plausible estimates for the impact on UK output um, in the long term of Brexit, um, they range from... Uh, you know, if you dismiss the sort of uh, nonsense that we heard from economists for free trade, the, or what used to be economists for Brexit last year about how Brexit was going to lead to some, you know, we dismiss that sort of nonsense. And we also dismiss the some sort of totally apocalyptic uh, stuff from, from some uh, some people, not economists, I think, on the ultra-remain side. Mm -hmm. You know, you see estimates of the potential cost of, you know, on the low end of being from 1% to 3% of GDP on the long term, by which I mean by 2030 or so, and on the high end of, 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 of 8 to 10% to GDP, uh, which is roughly consistent. That latter figure is roughly consistent with the estimates of how much we gain from being in the EU in the first place. Um, and if you translate to those to growth rates, um, at the lower end, you get 0.1 to 0.2% a year. Well, that's sort of rounding error hardly noticeable. It adds up. It's not negligible, um, but it, 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 it's not very big. Um, at the other end, you're talking about uh, um, you know half a percent of GDP off the growth rate for 15 years or so, or you know, uh, and that's big, you know, it's noticeable. We'd be noticeably poor. We noticed our standards of living slipping relative to the rest of the, the, uh, the continent. On the other hand, you know, we're still an advanced market and economy and democracy where 
you know, 95% of the population is richer than 99.9% of people who've ever lived through human history. Um, so it really isn't, in the great scheme of things, catastrophic. Um, so that that's sort of what I mean, that, you know, what is the reasonable range of effects of Brexit? It, it's probably we are going to be somewhat poorer, probably noticeably poorer, but not, again, not the end of the world. And I think the other side of that is, to, to, to say, of course, an awful lot depends on how the UK political system responds to Brexit in terms of policy. Um, and uh, to remember that, you know, economic, there are huge areas of economic policy uh, and probably the areas which directly affect people's lives, housing policy, education policy, welfare policy, where membership of the European Union doesn't direct have much direct impact, right? Around the edges a little bit. You know, there are some constraints on what we can do in welfare, but mostly we make our own welfare policy. Similarly, you know, European environmental policy has a little bit of impact on the planning system. But look, the housing crisis is self-made. And, and so this is where politics comes in. If politics somehow if there is some political mechanism through which Brexit leads to a huge focus on improving education for more disadvantaged uh, uh, young people and deal, you know, helping the half of young people who still don't go to university to get qualifications and skills that makes them uh, suit, better suited for the modern labor market, you, that would be a huge positive. Yeah. I, guess, my, I guess my final... Sorry, go on. Equally, you can imagine, uh, um, uh, you know, that Brexit could have feedback effects that could really negatively affect policy if it makes us independent of the EU, a much more closed, inward-looking, protectionist in the broader sense, the economy and society. So you can imagine the sort of indirect political impacts of Brexit having quite significant positive or negative economic impacts, even though legally and in direct legal terms, Brexit has nothing to do with it. Sure. Correlation is not causation, as, they, as we always say in our, in our research industry. But final, final, very brief question. I mean, on the on the subject of immigration, freedom of movement, which we've mentioned, um, there are those, uh, I think Tony Blair came out with this, uh, one of his recent interventions, where he said that actually immigration was just something Britain needed. And whether you called it freedom of movement or something else, um, the reality is you won't notice immigration change very much post-Brexit. I, I noticed that you maybe have a slightly different opinion to that. So those people that, um, I don't know, voted leave on the basis of immigration coming down, are they, are they going to be disappointed or are they going to see real real change, do you think? Uh, well, uh, um, it sort of depends what they really wanted, um, because I suspect what nobody really wants is, is you know, or, or cares about that much is what the ONS says the num has happened to the numbers. Um, they presumably care about what actually uh, um uh, they see locally in terms, you know, uh, 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 in terms of the impacts of immigration. So, you know, my view, as you, as you said, is that I think Brexit will lead to a significant fall in immigration, and indeed, the statistics we saw last week suggested already having some impact. And this is because, um, you know, uh, uh, we don't. It's not just that we choose immigrants; immigrants choose us. And the UK has, as a consequence of the Brexit vote, become a significantly less attractive place for people from the rest of Europe to come to, both directly because of the fall in the exchange rate, so our pounds are worth less in their home currencies, but also indirectly in terms of the amount of security and status that people can expect here in the next two, five, ten years when they're making long-term decisions about where to live. So we're a less attractive place. 
fewer people are going to come here. And I expect that to continue. So I do think you will see significant falls in immigration. Now, whether people are disappointed or not depends on what, why they didn't like the their previous levels of immigration and what they expect to happen as a consequence. If they simply don't like seeing, you know, hearing Polish spoken on their streets, um, then they may be pleased. Um, if they expect um, the availability of, of a doctor's appointment or the quality of care in the NHS uh, to improve as a direct result, then they will be disappointed because, in fact, uh, all the evidence suggests that immigration, reducing immigration will, if anything, make those uh, those things worse rather than better. Um, so, uh, uh, so, so, as I say, it depends on, on sort of on, on what people want and expected from lower immigration. And of course, which path we take of the two broad areas that you outlined earlier. Uh, Jonathan Portis, thank you very much for your time. Thank you. That was Jonathan Portis there. And a big thanks to Jonathan again uh, for joining us on this week's episode of Polling Matters and taking time out of his busy schedule to give us his perspective on the Brexit talks and where we go from here. I hope you enjoyed that conversation. Um, Before we sign off for this week's episode, I just wanted to touch on a couple of the talking points that I thought emerged from the conversation I've just had with Jonathan. I think the first that really struck me was this idea that Brexit would not be the end of the world. Now, I suppose that in a way is obvious and particularly with the benefit of hindsight. But we all remember during the um, the EU referendum campaign, there was lots of talk of economic Armageddon, of Britain being some backwater in the North Sea and so on and so forth. Whereas if I'm reading what Jonathan's saying correctly, what he's saying is actually... The real risk for Britain is that we are less well off as a country than we would otherwise have been if we'd stayed in the EU. And there are varying degrees of how true that will be. And I think that is a quite subtle difference and quite quite important, actually, to where the debate about Brexit might go in the future. If Britain feels demonstrably poorer than it was in, in a short time frame, then you could see how politically we might revisit where you know Britain's uh, relationship with the EU and indeed membership but if in reality Britain just ends up less well off to one degree or another than we would otherwise have been in GDP terms or whatever it might be then that's quite an intangible thing uh, that's quite the counter uh, counterfactual to prove uh, from the sort of remain side if, it, if it, insofar as that exists anymore so I thought that was an interesting point that Jonathan was making now of course um, he, he does talk about figures like half a percentage point on growth that are important. But I just wonder whether in reality public opinion will just adapt to the new reali- um, the new normal, as it were, in the future. And whether in fact actually we will generally just be getting on with Brexit one way or another. But actually that one way or another is, is actually really important. Now Jonathan highlights there are two very broad tracks of, of Brexit that we could end up taking. And I think that what's changed substantially in the last few months is that you know a Labour government is a possibility. It's even a possibility quite soon, depending on how the government goes. One would imagine that the uh, Tory deal with the DUP will be- remain reasonably stable for the next couple of years and that Tory MPs would not do anything that they thought would bring down the government and let in Jeremy Corbyn. But at the same time, when a government doesn't really have a solid majority of its own making and has to rely on other parties, then the government can only really be so stable. Um, And therefore, you know, what Labour thinks about Brexit is really important. And the parliamentary arithmetic is quite unclear, actually, in terms of what will will eventually happen. So I I think that one of the things that struck me from what Jonathan was saying was that 
from the uh, freedom of movement perspective, uh, it seems that immigration will fall quite significantly under the Conservatives' plans. But there are alternative plans that Labour might be more open to that we do have to take seriously now um, that, that a, a prospect of a Labour government is, uh, is, is possible. Um, it may not be likely, but it is possible in the uh, short to medium term. And I think the final thing that I would mention following my conversation with Jonathan is this idea that Jonathan raises, which is that Brexit is not necessarily the be-all and end-all of public policy. And it might sound like a strange thing to say because we obsess over it right now. But there are vast areas of government policy, housing, I think he mentioned, and education too, where ultimately Brexit or Britain's relationship with the European Union doesn't really come into things that much. Now, some people would dispute that on, on, on some areas and other, people, and other people would say that, hey, well, our economic growth does impact on how much money we can invest in those areas and so on and so forth. But at the same time, it's still worth us remembering that actually there are the overwhelming majority of decisions that we have to take as a country. We already take ourselves and therefore our future is very much in our own hands in terms of education, in terms of housing, in terms of the NHS and so on and so forth. Perhaps Brexit will open up more um, diverse solutions that can be used to solve some of those problems than we could otherwise have used. Perhaps not. That's for the future. But it is worth remembering that even though uh, I imagine that whatever happens to those in those policy areas will be defined by or interpreted through the prism of Brexit, actually a lot of the decisions we have to make are down to us and the direction of travel politically this country takes in the near future but that's all we've got time for for this week's episode of the politicalbetting.com polling matters podcast a big thanks once again to jonathan portis for joining me today if you like what we do and like what you hear then please do share us on any sort of social media related device you can like our facebook page share us on twitter or linkedin or, or wherever it might be and do give us a, a nice comment or rating on itunes and other podcast apps all of these things help get our voice out there and help get us uh, new and exciting guests to join me on uh, each weekly episode so anything you can do to help is really appreciated and stay tuned for more episodes in the coming weeks where we'll be talking about brexit and uh, trump no doubt but also we'll be trying to delve deeper into some um bigger issues in politics that are bigger than party politics that maybe we haven't been focusing on in the past. So there's some really exciting plans coming up. So do stay tuned in the future to find out what those are. But for now, thanks for listening and stay tuned for more episodes in the coming weeks.